If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Has physical materialism been undermined in favour of fields and energy, mathematics and information? This week we're asking whether the world is only material, only made of physical stuff. We're joined remotely by computer scientist and philosopher Bernardo Kastrup, philosopher of science Nancy Cartwright, and Oxford chemist Peter Atkins, who ask whether we should embrace the immaterial. And at some point we figured out that uh, with quantities, we could describe the relative differences between qualities in a very handy way. For instance, it feels different to lift a heavy rock or to lift a feather. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Barry Smith. Now, the topic for this morning is, of course, materialism and beyond. Is the world made of just one kind of stuff, physical stuff? That's been a popular view in the sciences for perhaps over 100 years, although more recently in science, we have abandoned simple views of what the material is in favor of talk of fields and energy And people have increasingly appealed to mathematics and information as the basic building blocks. So is materialism still going to do the work we hope it's going to do in providing us with an account of or a basis for descriptions of reality? After all, it has problems making room for and providing explanations of consciousness. So should we embrace other kinds of perhaps immaterial dimensions to reality? And if we do so, will they help us with our explanation? Will they put us in a position to see a better account of many of the other things that we want to take into our story about the full and exhaustive furniture of reality? Or are they always going to leave us feeling that there must be some underlying physicalist or materialist explanation of what reality consists of? So, speakers, thanks for joining me and joining all of us here online. I'm going to invite all of our speakers now to take three minutes to set out their stall and to address the question, does anything non-physical exist? So, can we start with you, Bernardo? 
Oh, it, I think it largely depends on what we really mean by the physical. If by the physical we mean this world of perceptions around us, these colors, shapes, uh, phenomena and objects that we see around us, to deny this is, is just silly. Uh, so I don't deny the perceptual world that physics uh, studies, models and predicts. Denying any of that is just silly. Um, but we in our culture have taken a step further uh, we say that uh, this world at its fundamental basis is not made of qualities, the qualities of perception, of colors, uh, melodies, and flavors, none of that. Underlying this world, there is a material world or a physical world that is fundamentally outside, independent, and beyond experience. Um, and that, I think, is a mistake. And I'll tell you why. I think the way this happened was that um, we start from qualities, our experiences. And at some point we figured out that uh, with quantities, we could describe the relative differences between qualities in a very handy way. For instance, it feels different to lift a heavy rock or to lift a feather. And we could encode that difference uh, with numbers such as mass and weight. Handy abstractions that allow us to describe this world of quality or the difference between blue and red, which we can describe as a delta in frequency. Um, and this was all very handy. And then the next thing we realize is that we all inhabit the same world, or at least largely the same. That's also undeniable. There is something out there. There is some context out there where we are all immersed. And that's why our experience of the world is so mutually consistent. And then we thought, well, guess what? If this world out there is outside our individual minds, it must be outside mind itself. Now, this is bad logic, but I think that's what happened. And then we asked, so what is there beyond mentation? Oh, we have these handy quantities here, these handy numbers that we've been using to describe qualities. Maybe they exist in and of themselves. They have a standalone existence. And there we went. We replaced the concreteness of the world for a abstraction that we sort of reified as having its own existence. We replaced the world by a description of the world and now we try to reduce the world of qualities to a world of pure abstract quantities that by definition exclude our qualities. And, and then we are surprised with the hard problem of consciousness, which is just an artifact of bad thought uh, in my view. We, we've taken a very wrong, very bad and examined step early on. We've become invested in it and now we are paying the price for it. And we talk about, well, one day we will solve the hard problem. Of course not. It's just an artifact of, uh, of bad thinking. So do I think there is a world beyond the physical? Well, beyond the physical defined as that which is not qualitative and experiential, I would say, sure, uh, uh, because th that thing is just an abstraction of mind. It doesn't really exist. It's just a conceptual narrative we tell ourselves. There is something beyond. But that beyond is the concrete world of experience. Uh, um, we do not need to explain objective reality by getting out of mind. We just need to get out of individual minds. I think the world that is really out there is a world of transpersonal mental states, not in, maybe not intelligence, not deliberate, doesn't have a plan. I'm not talking about these things. I'm talking about raw transpersonal uh, states, which modulate our inner world of perception and give rise to this world of qualities around us. Good. Thank you. So um, 
you see the problem of how we accommodate consciousness in the world as, as the problem of having excluded qualities. And so you start with, with the qualities right there, center stage, and then you're going to have to reconstruct bits of the world from these transpersonal uh, intersecting or overlapping consciousnesses. Okay, that's, that's, that's one way to do it. So let's hold that thought and then let's, uh, we'll come back to it, I'm sure. Let's go to Nancy now. Uh, is there more than physical things that we have to uh, concede in our ontology? Oh, Barry, I think the question doesn't make sense. Okay. Or I've, hard, I've never seen a really good way to make sense of it. Um, most of the, it's often put in terms of the physical or the material, and most of the, both materialists and anti-materialists I know, are happy to lump under the term material all sorts of things that are obviously not material, um, many of which you said at the very beginning uh, that we study, uh, some of them we study in modern physics, like forces, fields, energy, space-time curvature. Um, so I worry uh, that the term tends to get used, or it often is used, as a way of claiming the metaphysical high ground without the effort of honest toil. The argument tends to go, sometimes a very simple argument, um, look here, A, <laughs> we all know that only the material exists. B, what you're talking about isn't material, so C, what you're talking about doesn't exist. Now, in order for that <laughs> argument to work, we have to have three things. One is we need a really good characterization of what's meant in it by the material. Similarly, if we want to say there's nothing material, right? We need a really good characterization of what we mean by that. Second, we need a really good argument that what um, all, all that exists is material or immaterial and in the very way that we've characterized the concept. And then three, we need a really good argument that what the opposition likes isn't material in that very same sense that we've characterized it. And I've actually never seen um, a good case where all three of these uh, came properly together. One way to try and give more content to the, um, that some people have tried to give more content to the idea of the physical or the material is to really to focus on the idea of physical and say that, well, what we're really talking about is what physics studies. Mm. Well, now, even if we were uh, just to look at reality through the lens of modern science, there are hundreds of sciences uh, beyond physics and hundreds of thousands of kinds of things that these sciences take seriously as working parts of the world, from neuron gates and DNA strings to civil war, um, sexual harassment, uh, implicit bias, uh, or even epistemic injustice. Um, and um, are, so, are some of these material and some not? And if some of them are not, what's wrong with them? Or if all of them are, what's wrong with that? I mean, what, <laughs> what's the difference here and what's wrong with it? As far as I can see, um, there's no reason to believe uh, that these thousands of different kinds of things divide neatly into two categories, the physical, the non-physical, or that they, where the two categories have any real content, 
or alternatively, that they all fall under one interesting category that has some real content and does work for us. Um, so I want to um, close with uh, just a, a, the, the thought that um, I'm not sure not only what the question means, but what's our point in asking it is. Um, there's one question is what might possibly exist. Right? And the second question is um, what from the cur our current point of view do we have really good evidence exists? And I'm afraid I often see that the answer to the second question, what do we have right now good evidence exists, um, drives an answer to the first, what might exist. And I think that's a road to disaster because it stops speculation, it stops doing the right kind of research to discover new things, and um, Newtonian forces would never have gotten a look in under that. Good, thank you, Nancy. That's uh, that's very helpful, and uh, you've set as a sort of homework exercise. If we want to ask the question the right way, we're obliged to say what the terms of the question are, including fixing what we mean by physical, fixing what it excludes, and so on. Um, I I think that's right, and also I like the fact that you've now brought in the distinction between a theory of the stuff that exists, and then our theories about it. And you're talking. Uh, in the latter part of what you said about how what we've got reason to think might exist or to posit will come from what seems to be required by the best theories we have and that might be quite pluralistic in terms of the things that we've got room for. Okay, so same question to Peter. I wonder whether you think there's an ur foundational notion that underpins everything else or whether you're happy with a pluralism of the sort that Nancy requires. So Peter. Well, I, I come in two parts. My first part is as a scientist, and as a scientist, I also come in two parts. Um, I'm a naturalist in the sense that I think that all our conventional modes of investigation of the universe are adequate for exposing everything that there is, and that there is nothing worth considering that comes from outside our conventional procedures. So get rid of the spirit and things like that and go straight for our current modes of perception, extended, of course, as they are by building huge machines that enlarges our, our landscape. Um, but as well, and, my, and the second part of that first part is that I'm a materialist. And by a materialist, I mean, and the philosophers might disagree with me, I think that um, a materialist says that everything that physics uses is sufficient to account for everything that through naturalism we observe. And so that, as a materialist, I include tangible matter and fields and so on. And indeed, as Bernardo indicated, you can't really distinguish particles from fields. So as a scientist, that is someone who bases their, um, their attitude upon evidence. Uh, I'm a naturalist and a materialist. But my second part uh, is as a speculator. I certainly wouldn't call myself a philosopher or a metaphysician, but I'm prepared to speculate. And I'm prepared when I speculate, I'm entranced by the viability of mathematics as a mode 
of description of the world. And I'm very happy to speculate that the underlying, the, the infrastructure of the universe is mathematics. And that leads to all sorts. And I think that there is a um, certain amount of evidence that that might in fact be the case. But one can certainly think of um, the, the extraordinary usefulness of the language, the way that mathematics seems to map perfectly onto physical reality as exposed by naturalism and materialism. And uh, one can begin to see maybe glimmers of what it means for the universe to come into existence um, out of absolutely nothing, just as one can generate the integers out of the empty set. Uh, and once you have integers, you have mathematics. Um, and then, if you allow me to speculate even further, and it is pure speculation, and I think in this discussion, we should keep speculation distinct from science. I'm also surprised that mathematics is the supreme product of the human mind. And I wonder, therefore, whether I'm drifting into what might be a version of Bernardo's view of ultimate reality, that we are ourselves, in a sense, generating it. Thank you, Peter. So we've got a lot of pieces on the table that might be helpful for us to think them through. So Bernardo was talking about the way in which certain scientific exercises banish the qualities of uh, uh, smell, taste, all sorts of colors and so on from, from uh, reality. They seem to only belong in conscious experience and then we seem to have no place we could locate them. And he wanted conscious experience to be taken very seriously. So he, he puts it up front as it were. And then as a result of not being able to accommodate some aspects of conscious experience in a purely materialistic conception of the world, he wants to rebuild the things that we think of as objective reality out of those parts. Um, Nancy was uh, talking about the difference between the purely ontological inquiry, so when we just wonder what there is, the way the Greeks wondered what there is. Uh, we also have to distinguish that from our theories of what there is. And, and you might think if you were a physicalist, there's only one kind of stuff and that takes care of everything else that exists. It might be physical stuff, but it doesn't mean there's just one theory of that stuff. And we know that there might be different theories that posit uh, different levels of organization of that material. In fact, even materialists will admit that there are other things that are not another bit of matter. If you take a house, it's composed of um, bricks and mortar, but if you reduce it to the ground, as Aristotle said, you don't have the house, you need its, its form, its organization. Now that isn't another piece of matter, that's just an organization of matter, but we shouldn't think of that as being another stuff or another kind of thing. So we've got to be careful when we ask ourselves which things that the material world can accommodate require us to posit more than material substances. And then finally, Peter made, I think, uh, another move, which was to talk about naturalism. And just so that we have all these pieces clearly distinguished, naturalism isn't straightforwardly a, a commitment towards materialism. It's the view that everything there is is going to be accommodated in our best account in the natural sciences of what there is. And then the natural sciences, as Peter said, includes lots of things which are 
not so easy to reduce to purely material things. Uh, he mentioned some, but, but equally importantly, naturalism better not exclude mathematics because we need a lot of mathematics to do the natural sciences. <laughs> so, so we now have to give an account of what mathematics is. And it's not necessarily very easy to do that. But Peter wanted to say that maybe there's a sort of perfect isomorphism between the mathematics we use to describe the ultimate nature of reality in, say, physics and reality itself. Although I, we will get on to asking how he knows that, given that that's the lens through which we look. So I'm going to come to the first theme, which is, should we go beyond the dogma of materialism? Do we want to abandon it in any of the ways that people have already outlined? But I'm going to ask Bernardo first. Um, if we abandon materialism in the way that you suggest, I, I, and I know that you, you want to, um, I just want to hear a little more from you about how we reconstruct, as it were, uh, what Sellers called the manifest image, that there really is a world of people and chairs and things out there, and there's, there's a lot of stuff I interact with, and there are places all that stuff is when they're not with me, and I tend to think there are places that are there even if no one's looking at them. So how does your view make room for that if we move beyond that dogma of materialism, Bernardo? Oh, I want to start by taking a possible mis misunderstanding right uh, out of uh, off the table. Um, I'm not proposing any replacement or reform of science. Uh, I don't think a metaphysical position is uh, entailed or implied by science. I think science yeah. can be done in a completely metaphysically agnostic way because it's the study of the behavior of nature. It's not the study of what nature essentially is. So you're taking metaphysics seriously. It's beyond physics. So it's, it's a, correct. the things that are left over to discuss when science is done will still leave room for metaphysics. It, it, it's, it's a way of thinking about what underlies the behavior of nature. And science is about studying, modeling, and predicting nature's behavior, which is what enables technology. And technology would be the same even if you weren't materialist before. But we are human beings and we need a narrative. We need to have a way to think about what that thing is that is behaving. We can model that behavior very precisely as physics has finally achieved with quantum field theory. Okay, forget gravity for now. But we've modeled that behavior with amazing precision. Um, but when you go around and you ask, okay, how do I think about that which is behaving? That's a different question. And the answer to that will not in any way defeat science as it's done today. I think science is doing very well. Thank you. There may be some problems in psychology and some problems in foundations of physics. Uh, in the first one, problems related to, you know, p-values. Can you really trust that? Uh, sample size. And in foundations of physics in the sense that physics is becoming philosophy. It's losing ground. Uh, on, on, it, it's letting go of empirical grounds to some extent. Uh, but other than that, I think science is doing very well, uh, uh, and I'm for science all the way, and I don't think anything I'm saying contradicts any established uh, uh, fact uh, that has been established uh, scientifically. Now, I do think we can have a better way of thinking about what things are in and of themselves. Uh, I think it has been a mistake to replace a description for that which is described. And to imagine that the description has a standalone reality, and not only that, that it can generate what it has described in the first place. I think that's just bad thinking. Um, how should we go about it uh, then? Um, I think this is for mostly a, a, a cultural uh, uh, question. Um, how do we train ourselves 
to one, examine the, the ways in which our current interpretation of the nature of reality goes wrong. How do we realize that many of the very difficult problems that we face today, like the so-called hard problem of consciousness, aren't problems at all. They are just artifacts of, of bad thinking. Um, and what do we then adopt as the most reasonable narrative available? The true narrative, that's too ambitious. I don't think we are anywhere close to being able to state this is true. Uh, but how do we get closer to the truth um, based on some values that we all agree about? Okay, well, I want to I want to probe you a little bit on that because um, there's both the view that we're not going to change science, that, that we can have these more fundamental speculations and leave science where it is. I'm, I'm wondering whether that's true, even in what you just said, but I'm also wondering whether you, you've got the, the idea that it doesn't make a difference to anything in science and maybe even not to our lived experience. So isn't it just sort of a matter of choice? You pay your money and say, I think it's made of this or it's made of that, but it's sort of inert. The other, on the other end, you did say the hard problem is just a, a mistake from our thinking, but if people are setting out in science to try and address it, uh, then if you have your thinking uh, come into play and convince them, aren't you changing the science? Yeah. Stop doing science that way. So it's not quite, it's either very inert or it's not inert yeah. at all. Yeah, thanks for asking this question. I see now how I, was, uh, I wasn't clear enough. In the ideal world, science as an ideal archetype of, of, of uh, as an ideal method, it wouldn't be affected at all uh, by, by adopting a different metaphysics. In the real world, scientists are people um, and they, they will change their behavior based on the narrative they implicitly or explicitly adopt. So I think in the real world, if we correct our views or at least improve our views on the nature of reality, many good things uh, can come uh, and many things can change. We would be open to avenues of investigation that uh, before we wouldn't have explored. And there is one important thing uh, that, that I want to mention. I think, you know, science is the, is the method for investigating what presents itself on the screen of perception. It's this, it, science is about perception. Physics is the science of perception. Um, but there is more than perception. We have endogenous uh, phenomenal states, inner experiences. We have psychological problems. And you could claim that those are physical too by reduction. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that today quantum physics doesn't predict my next thought. Quantum physics doesn't predict whether my therapy will solve my neurosis. Uh, he didn't, <laughs> by the way. Um, so I think there are other valuable avenues of inve investigation that we could explore next to science and which would be validated if we didn't think anymore that in principle and one day everything could be reduced to what is displayed on the screen of perception. I think that would go a long way in uh, coming up with new methods uh, for, for easing our existential despair, anxiety and neurosis. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, 
and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. But, but isn't this good? I'm going to bring in Nancy because I'm, I'm interested in whether there's more agreement than it seemed at first, because although you're driving towards a, a single answer to what the foundational or ultimate nature of reality is, in talking about being prepared to say, well, let's not just deal with physics and what it, what it says about the field of perception. Let's, let's talk about these many other ways of addressing the human experience. Aren't you making room for other sciences? Nancy, presumably you would think having room for all those other sciences doesn't necessarily commit you to one underlying nature for reality. Is that right? Absolutely not. I, that would be bad logic that because you've got room for lots of different kinds of things, suddenly it's all the same uh, underneath. Um, so uh, we both of us uh, agree um, um, in worrying about the reductionist program when you're reducing things to say, uh, physics uh, or some particular thing as a reductionist program. But I think my worries about reductionism are broader than uh, Bernardo's because I don't want to have one kind of thing that everything has to be uh, because I think uh, it's limiting in our horizons and the kind of researches that we can do. Um, so I had exactly your thought that uh, we, what do we need this narrative for? Either it's inert or it does some work for us. And insofar as it's a narrative, um, it can do quite a lot of harmful work. And um, in particular, it can stop us from doing research on into issues and on going in directions that we might otherwise be able to go in. Now, that doesn't mean that I think um, you can just go anywhere uh, because I'm, I'm this kind of person who thinks that um, science and knowledge right, builds from where we are uh, in, by being very careful and moving forward in steps that uh, fit together uh, and have to have lots and lots and lots of backup. Um, and so, I mean, I don't want to uh, buy, uh, you know, have have the influence of some large narrative, whether it's a physicalist, a physicist, physicsist, or um, uh, an idealist, um, influencing that work. I want to get down to the details and see where we are and what ideas we have and how you can weave. Uh, and I think sciences and general knowledge gain is really, really hard work. And it takes a large community of people doing things together and different kinds of activities like designing measures, right? Is just as important as designing a theory. Yeah. So, so I'm going to let Bernardo reply to that. Are these narratives going to be a constraint on our doing science? Well, uh, let me first self-identify as a reductionist. Um, but um, I think it's very important to choose our reduction base, what we explain things in terms of. So I am a mind reductionist, um, not personal mind, but mind as a essence. I think everything can be reduced to mind. And why am I a reductionist? I acknowledge that there is no law writ large in nature saying nature shall be reduced to one thing. We don't know that. But I think the history of science over the last 300 years provides plenty of suggestion that uh, usually we can reduce things. So I wouldn't abandon that project yet. Uh, yet. I think the, where we go wrong is when we choose our reduction base, base badly. If we choose our reduction base as this abstract notion of matter outside and independent of experience, then we will 
automatically make certain very important and very real things epiphenomenal and insignificant, like human emotion, human sense of meaning, human sense of purpose. Uh, and these are very important because th these give the, they set the tone for how we live our lives and for how much we enjoy or detest our lives. Um, so I think that narrative is not inert at all. It's very important, I think, to give, uh, to grant real existence to mind, uh, but still in a reductionist uh, framework. So, so I want to I want to ask you about that in particular. That's a, that's very nicely put. And then the the worry, I suppose, is we don't want to have a, a view of reality that would leave those very important things out, aspects of our minds, our conscious experience, our emotions, our motivations, everything else. But but why? including them doesn't leave us in a pluralistic ontology rather than uh, why, why does it mean that it, it's, it's going to be that mind takes prior or, or prime importance? I mean, what, one, one thing is Hilary Putnam used to say, the world and the mind are made by the world and the mind, right? Now, it's very <laughs> difficult to decide exactly which bit's responsible for which, but I'm, I'm wondering why you're so convinced we can reduce some things to other things, but why are you convinced there's going to be just mind will be the, 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 the final thing that everything rests on. We don't want to leave it out, but why not pluralism? I think there's enough pluralism in mind. I think mind can have unfathomably varied patterns of excitation and topology, and I think we can explain everything in terms of those patterns of excitation and topologies of mind. Um, why do I want to stick to one uh, uh, element in my reduction base, because I think if we don't need to postulate more, we shouldn't. That's that's okay. a very old principle in okay, science so and philosophy. Good. So there's a simplicity. So Nancy, uh, I, want to, I want to have you, I'm going to bring in Peter in a minute, but Nancy, I want to have you address that. So I think Bernardo wants a sort of simplicity criterion to do a lot of work. Here. Well, I, I think I have the same attitude to Bernardo um, that I do to have Peter's um, physics reductionism, that um, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, this is a grand claim that's been made. The history of science shows us it's not just on Bernardo's side. I see it on the other side. Occasionally, every once in a while, some bit of some science is actually reduced to another. Uh, more often, they learn how to interact. The kinds from the different uh, sciences learn to interact. And then much of the time, the, our understanding of how they interact is very, very loose indeed. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't all be the same. But I don't see why it's at all natural to have a reductive base, a small reductive base at all. I look around me and I see thousands of different kinds of things that are studied in thousands of different ways. And I just don't see the argument that it all has to be um, physics. Now, I mean, I realize that um, my, uh, what my body is doing is going to affect um, uh, what I say and so forth. It's not that some of the factors that physics studies um, don't influence other things that other sciences study, um, but that they're reducible. It's a very, very strong claim rather than that there's lots and lots of different kinds of things and they interact in complicated different ways that it's our job um, as scientists to figure out. Right. And as Quine said, why should we expect a simple theory of a complex world? So, I mean, I guess that you're, 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 you're quite, a, uh, you're attracted by that view. But I want to come to Peter. Peter, um, you, you do want, or you're, you're speculating with the idea that mathematics is, is uh, a kind of reduction base. That's what's there. But I'm wondering how sensitive you are to something that Bernardo said early on, where he wanted to distinguish between a description and what it's a description of. And are you sensitive to the worry that? Mathematics is very good for doing the modeling, as it were, but it isn't 
the phenomenon that's being modeled. I mean, I often hear people say at the bottom of it all is mathematics. And I think at the bottom of the theory is mathematics, but what are, why do we think mathematics suddenly, as shown in theory, becomes a bit of what our theories are trying to get at? Well, that's where I'm not simply speculating. It's not a part of science. And incidentally, I wish people would stop talking about the sciences. Yeah. There is only one science, which is an evidence-based analysis of the world with, a, with um, the observations and the theories put into a, a, a network of self-sustaining uh, concepts. So there is just one science, not many sciences. Um, I, I, I think, in, in a sense, we're confronted with a number of problems if we think that mathematics is at root the fabric of reality, and that mind is, in fact, the fabric of reality. First of all, where does mind come from? In a sense, we're almost bootstrapping mind into existence, in the sense that in order to have mind, then you need physical reality of some kind. But physical reality is, we are starting to speculate, simply the mind in action. So there's a bootstrapping going on, which is itself interesting, much the same way perhaps as mathematics bootstraps itself up into the world. But then um, our perception, I mean, some, a, a question I think that maybe the audience is scratching its head with is, how do you touch mathematics? How does mathematics, in some sense, become tangible? And I think this is a very interesting question, and I'm sure that there's no answer to it yet. But if you want to speculate, then one can find ways, perhaps, to penetrate that question. I, I would take the view that all perception is actually touch. I, obviously, touch itself is touch. I think hearing is touch because it's the impact of molecules on, on the ear. I think that vision is touch because the, the molecular basis of vision is really light impinging upon the molecule, which changes its shape. And so it can no longer touch properly the surrounding protein. So it jumps out. And presumably you think, and presumably you think, smell is vibration, uh, which case, no, well, it, 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 yeah, or it, a smell could be molecules fitting into the appropriate receptors in in the nose and so on. Much, much, so, much better than it being vibration, I think. That's a very controversial. Yeah, but whatever. Um, but I, I, I think um, if we put all perception down to touch, all that the brain is doing is interpreting in the different regions of the brain different touches. But then you say, well, what is the ma mathematical basis of touch? And I think the mathematical basis of touch is the exclusion of one body from another. And I think why do you get exclusion of one body from another? Then you find it's based in the Pauli principle, which is a comment on the symmetry of wave functions which takes you right to the heart of quantum theory in the way that it is formulated mathematically. So I think you can begin to see that, that there is a way of understanding how you can touch mathematics and that mathematics 
then becomes tangible and hence one of achieves the what we've been calling the material universe. Well, there were there are a lot of moving parts in that argument, and I wonder <laughs> how many of them we might unpick. But uh, I mean, it's very interesting because you have a you have a sort of almost monotheistic view. There's just science, and then despite behavioral sciences and, and neuroscience, biological science, so you just, there's just science, and then now their perception is just touch. You do remember, of course, that touch itself is not one thing. There's pain, there's heat, uh, there's tactile sensation. I mean, it, it, uh, I think it, 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 but it's, very, it's very important, Peter, when we look at how the brain works in a way that's genuinely explanatory, that we recognize the senses work in different ways but affect each other's working. And if we're, if we're going to try and think there's a single form of perception, everything is reduced to, and most people used to just give us their theory of perception, a theory of vision, and then say, I'll do the slight adjustments around the edges. Yeah. We're now but, finding but we know that we have more. But we know we have synesthesia, which was the, 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 the leakage of one type of sensation into, uh, into another type of perception. I see no problem with that. Synesthesia, though, is not what I'm talking about. I mean, synesthesia is very, is very idiosyncratic, and people have their own associations between what happens in one sense and what happens in another. We tend to see much more uh, that there's a commonality of cross-modal workings, that touch will affect vision, uh, vision can affect hearing, hearing can affect taste. Now, to work these things out, you do have to keep them separate and see the differences. And, I, and I'm just wondering whether the, the, the tendency to want to have it all in a single package is going to leave you with Nancy's problem, like, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. At the moment, we're making a lot of progress by um, as it were, a patchwork approach where we see... No, but that's, 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 that's really the, the, the program of reductionism. And I think reductionism is a wonderful way of discovering the, the parts of the world. And it's the easy part of science. The difficult part of science is the opposite of reductionism, assemblism, where you put together the components and hope to assemble the butterfly. Right. Bernardo, I want to bring you in here because I wonder whether... Uh, you are tempted by the mathematical description of the reality that you think is the ur reality or the foundational reality in our experience. I think you made a, a good point, but I don't think it defeats uh, uh, the point Professor Artkins originally made, and I was itchy to elaborate on this. Um, I think replacing reality for a description is problematic. And unfortunately, it's happening a lot now. We have now digital physics, pen computationalism, all this stuff that basically says that uh, uh, what really exists is the mathematics and even matter we can get rid of as redundant baggage, as a famous physicist, Max uh, Tegmark, said uh, only six years ago. Um, I think that's equivalent to saying that uh, the Cheshire cat's uh, uh, green stays after the cat disappears, which is something you can write in proper grammar and syntax, like Lewis Carroll actually did, but it has no meaning. It's like speaking of a dance without the dancer, speaking of a ripple without the fluid, speaking of a sp of spin without the top. So we cannot say that information exists in and of itself, because informa information is a way to describe and quantify the number of possible different states that uh, a system can, can take on. So I think this line of abstraction is futile, so I would agree with your point, but I don't think it defeats Professor Atkins' uh, initial uh, uh, point, which is the wonder that mathematics is so suitable for describing nature. I find that a very relevant thing as well. Why would 
the axiomatic ways of thinking of a primate evolved on this planet uh, turn out to be so suitable for describing the behavior of nature. Th this isn't trivial at all. I mean, there is a, this paper by um, uh, uh, Weiner, I think it was, in 1960, the, 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 the miracle of the effect and effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. I think th th there is something to, to stop and think. I mean, I, I don't think mathematics exists in a vacuum. I think it reflects the natural patterns of rational thought. In other words, it just reveals something about the topology of mind. And I think that's the reason why it works so well, because our mind is continuous with the external world, which is also mental, but transpersonal. I would explain things that way. Uh, but I don't think rejecting abstraction uh, re uh, uh, invalidates the point of wonderment about the effectiveness of mathematics. Good. Okay, well, I, I want to bring Nancy in here, because if, if mathematics, if you think mathematics still has this wonder of perfectly fitting and describing. Uh, we know that Nancy's the famous author of the book, How the Laws of Physics Lie. And so I wonder whether she's as co committed to or convinced of the, the perfect fit as you are, Nancy. Well, I do think that we have uh, very, uh, sometimes very accurate descriptions of reality uh, using very precise quantitative terminology. Um, so when I wanted to argue that the laws of physics lie, I was concerned about um, high theory and the claim that it organizes everything underneath it. Um, and uh, so I'm, I've got nothing against uh, the quantitative nature of reality um, uh, because it seems to me that uh, I measure things all the time, uh, not just the kind of things that physics measures, but you measure uh, levels of implicit bias. Um, and uh, one of the things about um, the mathematics and physics, which you, you haven't mentioned, is um, that, and the confusion between the description and the, what it's a description of, is that um, if you think about the way things are done in um, certain branches of uh, the social sciences, um, where you... Um, design a measure for a concept. You design the, the measure and it has a, a formal representation for the concept. And so are you going to represent it by a set or a set of sets or um, just a cardinal, uh, an ordinal scale or something like that? Um, and you justify your representation by proving a representation theorem, by characterizing the subject you're trying to represent well enough that you can show that this is a reasonable way to represent it. And, and um, you, one of the problems with a lot of what's happened in very contemporary physics is that it's pretty hard to, to eke out what the independent characterization of the thing is that you're trying to represent. Um, we're just faced with a representation and you put your representation in your equations and you talk about it, but there's no independent characterization of the reality that it, um, that it represents. Now, I have no idea how to think about that problem, but I do think it's one of the reasons why um, this kind of mathematical idealism uh, is catching on right? <laughs> because we, we've lost the physics in a lot of the physics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 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 I see that and I think Bernardo will want to say that's a sort of, that's a good thing because it's got to, it, it, we've got the ideal match. It, it may be not so surprising that our, that mathematics is very good at, at 
providing these descriptions if it's our minds that are handling them and understanding the mathematics. But I'm wondering whether, Peter, you think that if we're to try and say that there's this perfect match, we've then got the problem of what mathematics is about. There's always been a big philosophical question. Um, we're utter, I mean, it's a very funny philosophical question. We're utterly convinced that we can have access to truths of mathematics. There's a lot of certainty, un unlike our views about nature of reality or the empirical world. We're very convinced of certainty, but we're not so easily uh, able to say what the truths of mathematics are truths of. I mean, what, what are the what are the facts, as it were? Now, we've got Platonists, and we've got constructivists, and we've got all sorts of ways of interpreting the nature of mathematical reality. So you either think that there's some sort of platonic world out there such that our access to it is via the way we have of describing it, perhaps in a language of proof. But there are other people who think, no, there's just the mechanisms for constructing proof, and we only have as much mathematics as springs into reality through our means of extending it by proof. So I'm wondering if you've got a, an underlying speculative, I'd say philosophical view, about what the nature of mathematical reality is. Oh, that's so difficult, isn't it? Who knows what mathematics is? I mean, it, it, in a sense, it's a, it's a coldly emotion-free pure logic it's the it's the manifestation of of pure logic and maybe nothing more and so the, the reason why this universe hangs together may be because mathematics is at least up to a point self-consistent uh it's conceivable that mathematics is not self-consistent in which case the universe would not be self-consistent and indeed it might vanish in a moment who knows it already has. Um, but I, no one knows what mathematics is yet. And, uh, and, and maybe, as in all things, it's when scientists begin to understand what mathematics is that philosophers will start to understand. After all, all philosophy makes progress by catching the coattails of science. And so I think we have to wait for the scientists to start to understand the nature of mathematics. And with that, I would just like to thank all of our speakers for what I thought was a fascinating discussion. So thank you to Bernardo Nastrop, thank you to Nancy Cartwright, and thank you to Peter Atkins. And to all of you, goodbye, have a, have a good afternoon. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.